0: Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, So good to see you all. And uh, hopefully you're ready to uh, dive into God's word as we're going to spend the next seven weeks climbing a mountain peak uh, in the scriptures themselves. And so why don't you go ahead and get your Bibles out. Matthew chapter 7 as I'm flipping there. Uh, So good. So good to be back uh, with you all uh, in fullness. And uh, so thankful for the men that filled uh, the pulpit uh, in in my absence. In fact, I'm looking at two of them right over here, uh, Pastor Stephan and Brian Levy, one of our elders. So thankful, uh, so thankful that we have men who can uh, adequately uh, and and quite sufficiently uh, teach and preach and proclaim uh, God's word. It's uh, no understatement when I say that we're blessed around here. All right. Uh, but Matthew chapter 5, the next seven weeks... Actually, let me just take a moment kind of tell you where we're going for the next number of we, or next number of months, actually. Uh, in the next seven weeks, we're going to do the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew cha- uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus, uh, undoubtedly the greatest sermon ever preached. And so we'll spend seven weeks moving through uh, that uh, passage of Scripture. And then uh, that'll take us up to Labor Day weekend. And then the weekend after that, we're going to get into the book of Acts. And we're going to go verse by verse through the entire book uh, of Acts, <clears throat> uh, really diving into uh, the church, uh, what, what the church is to look like, what it is that you and I are to be. And uh, that'll probably take us uh, with uh, some breaks and standalones and whatnot in there. That may take us beyond Easter, uh, depending on how that plays out. But uh, that'll be a, a phenomenal time to walk uh, through that. But uh, this morning, uh, we get the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5. And as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, you need to understand, as I said, this is undoubtedly the greatest sermon that's ever been preached throughout all of mankind. Uh, Incredible application of so much that Jesus addresses and engages here in these particular chapters. I'll just tell you up front that my fear, because I see us do it all the time with these uh, particular chapters, Uh, Principles and applications in this passage. My fear is that we would come to this over the next uh, seven weeks and that we would treat the Sermon on the Mount as just one big uh, checklist of do's and don'ts. And that it would become something, okay, do this, don't do this, act this way, don't act this way. But stripped of the very heart that that Jesus intended from the very beginning that all of these things were meant uh, to, to lead us to and to push us towards And so at the expense of playing the spoiler, I want you to flip over real quick, just a couple pages to the right, Matthew chapter 7, because I want you to see this from the very heart, very beginning, very start of this. Matthew chapter 7, let me start in verse 21. All these things that Jesus has engaged towards the very end of his sermon, he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That statement should terrify all of us. All right, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then notice what he says next. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, probably want to know what the will of the Father is. I don't want to be one of those people saying, Lord, Lord, and being on the outside looking in. So notice what Jesus says next. He says, on that day, many will say to me, now listen to what they're saying Listen to what it is that they've fixed their attention and their focus on. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not, and they're going to start talking about all the things that they did, prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never done any of those things. Okay, Uh, So those guys have some pretty serious qualifications that they bring to the table right there. All right, and yet Jesus is saying you're on the outside looking in, but notice what he says, verse 23. And then I will declare to them, you might want to underline these next four words. I never knew you. I didn't know you. You did and did and did and did and did, but you didn't know me. See, the entirety of this sermon is not some checklist of do and don't, be good, don't be bad. It's all meant to drive us to a place, yes, where we have a greater understanding and knowledge of God. But not just an intellectual understanding, but a relational and an intimate and abiding relationship with Him. And So don't get fixated on the doing at the expense of the knowing. So with that, why don't we read... First 16 verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Here we go, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. Here's what Jesus says. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 11 and 12 is almost a small commentary on verse 10. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we're going to pray here in a moment. Normally we would pray for another church in the area, but given all of the events uh, this past week, in the Middle East and just the, the horrific events that are unfolding, I think uh, it would be wise of us, to, instead of praying for a church here locally, if we would just uh, pray for uh, the churches over there and just uh, the people in general over there, Some, uh, many who are far uh, from our Savior. So why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you, and God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for Uh, Just your infinite goodness and glory and wisdom and grace that uh, you share and extend to us. God, we thank you that your desire is uh, to know us and to be known by us. God, honestly, I don't get why you're really into that. I don't get why you're so um, bent on uh, knowing us and drawing us close. And yet I'm eternally grateful for that. God, I pray that our hearts would be humbled, that we would be soft, that, that we would long to know you more and more. And God, not only for us, I, we think of all those throughout the entire Middle East and all of the events that unfolded, all of the lives that have tragically entered into eternity and continue to do so. And God, we pray that you would bring peace to that part of the world. But God, not simply the, the ending of physical conflict, but true lasting spiritual peace that Your gospel would penetrate those lands that so desperately need You. And God, as we think about brothers and sisters living in that part of the world, would You give them a voice? Would You give them the capacity to speak and to share and to to herald and to proclaim Your message of truth? And God, for us now as we Open up this phenomenal passage, would you teach us? Would you allow us to hear and to know the truth of your word and to be radically transformed by who you're calling us to be through the power of your spirit? Jesus, would you make this so? We pray this in your name. Amen. Bible, the title of the message this morning is "Blessed Glory." And kind of a play on words, and hopefully it's a little bit confusing where you go, wait, what? And I understand there's an element to the title that's just downright cheesy, and I don't really care about that so long as it sticks in your head, okay? But the idea of blessed glory, and it's the idea that I want us to see the blessings that Jesus speaks about uh, in the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12, that, that for all of us that we come to the place where we see it connected with His glory in verse 16, because that's exactly what Jesus tells us. So three things here this morning from the text, and actually I'm going to start at the very end of the text. I want to start in verse 16, because that's where we get at the motivation of all of this. Verse 16, the purpose of blessed glory. Notice what Jesus tells us there. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Right, it's obvious what Jesus is saying here that, that our works are to be evident, that they're to be seen and known by the people around us. That 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 it's it's obvious what's going on in your life and in my life based on the things that I'm doing and saying and the way that I'm acting. But the question is, for what purpose? For what purpose? Because if we don't understand the motivation that Jesus is getting at here, there's a great danger that we slip into some form of moralism or behavioralism that's stripped of the gospel itself. So notice what Jesus says next. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. See, the purpose of blessed glory is that we're living for God's glory. That we have to understand at the very outset that the very uh, reason, the very purpose for your existence, for my existence, is for the glory of God. It's, a, it's about His glory. It's about Him. It's about the things that, that, that He calls us to. And everything in the, the, the first 16 verses of, uh, of, of Matthew chapter 5, they're tied to what we see here in verse 16. The Beatitudes, being salt, being light, it's all tied to God's glory. Those things should all be taking place in our life, ultimately, to see greater glory extended to Jesus Christ. Now notice, right, notice that that even in identifying the works in your life and in my life, it should drive ourselves and others around us to give greater glory to Jesus, right, or to, to God, right? It's all about His glory. And even Jesus Himself modeled this for us. Remember Philippians chapter 2, that great passage about Jesus being the, this incredible servant and then um, God's response to that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Tell me, Lord. he's Lord. But see, Paul doesn't stop there, right? That, that, that would be a phenomenal a mountain peak, if you will. But it's what he says next that's so crazy. He says, to the glory of God the Father. Even the exaltation of Jesus is meant to bring glory to God the Father. Or what about the end of Ephesians chapter 3, that great pastoral prayer that Paul prays over the church in Ephesus? To Him, he's talking about God, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So both in the church and in Jesus, there's glory that's extended, that's, that, 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 that's elevated to God Himself, and so so the issue, right? The issue is not whether or not the works are seen, because some, sometimes we do that, whether it's out of humility or some sense of it's bad if people see that I'm actually good or whatever motivation that we have. Sometimes we go, well, I can't let people, I can't let people know that I'm serving. I can't let them know that I'm doing these good things. It's supposed to be secretive, and yet. I don't know about you, but when I read verse 16, there's not supposed to be any secret about it. The whole idea is a light that shines into the darkness. That's pretty revealing. And so it's not that our works are to be secretive. It's not that they're not to be known. See, the real issue is the direction of the glory that comes from the works. That's really the issue. And when it comes to the direction of the glory, is it intended to make much of me? Me? Look at how great I am. Look at how talented I am. Look at how special I am. Look at how wonderful I am. I'm this great snowflake, right? This whole, I'm so special and distinct and different. Is it about me? Or is it meant to push people, to drive people, to direct people to the matchless God of the universe? And look at how great he is. See, the works are to be seen. The issue is what do we do with the glory that comes from them? C.J. Mahaney, who's a pastor back on the East Coast, he wrote a book called Humility, small little book. It's phenomenal. I'd highly recommend it to all of you. But one of the things he talks about in that book is is, is really struggling as people would come up and and, and compliment him and, and say things to him where he really struggled with: how do I handle this? What do I do with this praise? What do I do with this compliment? And so what he began to do is as people would would say things, right, you just don't want to necessarily shut them down and be obnoxious or rude. But he also didn't want to let it go to his head and get all puffed up and be like, you know what, I really am pretty amazing, aren't I? And so just quietly in his mind, what he would do is as people would say things to him, he would just say, God, look what you've done. God, look what you've accomplished in this person's life. Now, some people could connect the dots. Other people are incapable of doing it in that particular moment. But what he began to do is, this is not ultimately about me. This is ultimately about you. And he began to pass it along, even secretly or quietly in his own heart. The issue is the direction of the glory. And so let me just ask you this question here. What am I willing to do? What am I willing to be? What am I willing to endure to see greater glory extended to Jesus? Let me just say that again. Think about that here for a moment. What am I willing to do? What am I willing to be? What am I willing to endure to see greater glory extended to Jesus? Some of you, some of you, as you hear that, your mind instantly goes to a particular behavior, an attitude. Uh, uh, a particular struggle, struggle in your life, some, something that you're wrestling with right now, some sin that is, okay, it's time to be done. I need to be done with this. I need to get victory over this, but I'm just, I'm struggling in this area. Right, to what lengths am I willing to go? What, what am I willing to do? What am I willing to be? What am I willing to endure to see greater glory extended to Jesus? For some of you, you don't go to a particular sin. See, for some of you, you might even go to a good thing might go to a very good thing. But that good thing is standing in the way. It's preventing you from, from, from fully seeing the glory of God uh, uh, elevated and, and emulated in your life. Can I just tell you that in my life, I've really been struggling with one of those things? Just be, I mean, church is a great place to be honest, amen? Okay, so I'll just, I'll be honest with you. I've really been struggling with one of those things in my life where I've really been wrestling with a good thing, a good thing, but that good thing is preventing me from seeing the fullness of God's glory take place in my life. Now, how many people are here uh, all for authenticity and transparency? Who's for that here? Okay, well, hopefully you all are, okay? Um, that's, and that should be inherent in, in who we are. So I'll just, let me model that here for a moment or attempt to. So Becky and I were on vacation uh, for a couple of weeks. And it was a great time for us to just get away and to uh, to see some old friends and family. And we were back in the Midwest. And uh, I'll just be really, really honest with you. When we got in the car to begin driving home, uh, I didn't want to come back. I didn't want to come back uh, because I was struck with the reality. I don't live around my family anymore. I mean, at one point in time, all of my siblings lived within three miles of where I lived. As adults, well, I don't know if you could qualify my youngest brother as an adult. Technically, yes, but I don't know. It's still suspect, okay? Um, but, but as adults, all living near each other. Outside of about three and a half years of my life, I had spent my entire life in staff. And so instead of measuring how long I've known people in days, weeks, or months, you measured in years or decades. And so when I got in the car to drive home, I, just, I didn't want to come back. And let me, be, let me be really clear. It's not that we don't love you all or love being here or love Faith Church. I want you to understand it's not what we wish we had here. It's what we don't have here. Because we, we love being here. We love this church. I can honestly tell you I love almost all of you. <laughs> I'm just, okay, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I only love some of you. No. Okay, look at me. Look at me. I love every single one of you. Okay, I do. And and I know some of you I barely even know. I might not even know some of your names. Uh, But through the power of Jesus Christ, I can honestly say that I love every single one of you. Okay, but when we got in the car and started driving home, I didn't want to let go of the family. I didn't want to let go of being known. And the closer and closer we got, the harder and harder it was to keep going. And in fact, at one point in time, I thought to myself, you know, when we get to Albuquerque, let's just top off the tank. We'll just head another 300 miles west. And maybe we'll come back. Maybe we won't. Who knows? Right? And, and then and then I'm going to think, you know what? We're going to get to our house, and, and I'll get into the office. We'll start seeing people, and it'll get better. And I even thought, you know, one of my siblings is going to send some obnoxious text, and I'll be like, you know, I'm so glad I'm not around you. Actually, it's great to be in another area, and none of that happened. And, in fact, it just got worse and worse and worse, and we walked into our home, and it's like, I guess it's home. And we'd been back a couple of days, and one of the places that I've been reading in my own personal uh, quiet time is in the Gospel of Luke. And I was reading Luke 9. It was about a week ago, Friday morning, reading Luke 9. And one of my all-time favorite passages in the Scriptures, in fact, the very first Sunday morning that I ever preached in a church, was out of the last six verses of Luke chapter 9. Here's what we see in Luke 9. There's three guys. Jesus has three encounters with three men about following him. The first guy says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus basically says, I'm homeless. He's out. Okay. Second guy, Jesus says, follow me. A guy says, I will, let me first bury my father. Jesus' response seems harsh, though when you begin to study, you realize it's not really all that harsh. And he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then the final guy, the final guy just really hit home for me. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But Let me first say farewell to those in my home. I just, man, I just, I read that that Friday morning. I just broke down sobbing. I mean, I could see myself right there. I'm like, that's me. That's me. That's where I'm at. God, won't you just let me go do this? And of course, the next verse, no one who puts his hand to the plow. Listen very carefully. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So maybe some of you are in a place like me where you've got a really good thing, but it's preventing the fullness of God's glory being played out in your life. God, help us that we would put our hands to the plow and start moving forward. Becky and I had a saying when we actually made the decision to come out here. And we just kept saying to each other, no looking back, just looking up. No looking back, just looking up. And for how many of us here today, right? it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that's preventing us from living for the fullness of God's glory. It's a good thing. It's a good thing, but it's, it's not a good thing in that it begins to strip and take away my attention for all that God has for us. The purpose of blessed glory. We're living for God's glory. Let me just ask you one more time. What am I willing to do? What am I willing to be? What am I willing to endure to see greater glory extended to Jesus? And I'll go back. Go back to the beginning of the chapter and here's really the heart of where we're going to be. Uh, The life of blessed glory. Okay, We see the purpose, the motivation. It's about God's glory. Everything that we do, everything that we are, everything that God calls us to be, it's about His glory. And now we begin to see the action, right? But we have to see the purpose of it, the motivation for it first. We don't want it to be uh, the gospel uh, boiled down to some form of moralism. But the life of blessed glory... The word blessed literally means fortunate or prosperous. In fact, the Greeks often used this word of the gods and it denoted a transcendent happiness of life beyond care, labor, and death. It was also commonly used of the rich in reference to their freedom from the worries and cares of daily living. In the New Testament, this term was, uh, was used for the distinctive joy that comes through living in God's kingdom the distinctive joy that comes when we live in light of God's kingdom. And so eight, eight specific items that we see here, and it's not reserved just for the rich or just for the elite or just for the best of the best, but for all of us who would choose to yield and surrender ourselves to Jesus and his command. Uh, The first four, uh, the first four relating to our relationship between God and ourselves. The second four uh, between uh, one to another, uh, uh, horizontally from person to person. Okay, so here we go. Here's the first verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, that, that literally means the spiritually bankrupt. Spiritually destitute. Some of you might be going, wait, wait, wait. I'm not, I'm not spiritually bankrupt. I'm not spiritually destitute. In fact, if, if anything, I'm, I'm in a phenomenal place spiritually. I would hope that all of you in this room could, could say that from the, the core of your heart. But my question would be like, Why? Do you find yourself in that particular place? Because of the finished work of Jesus, that's why. See, all of us, all of us, all of us at some point in our life were or still are today spiritually bankrupt, empty, broken. And no one, no one, no one comes to the place of being spiritually full or fulfilled without first acknowledging I'm bankrupt, I'm empty, I'm destitute spiritually. Because it's at that very point where the gospel comes rushing in. That's where the hope of Jesus shows up. Not because I have it all together, but because I'm broken and I've got nothing together. But the mistake we sometimes make, the mistake we sometimes make is we think, well, I'm not poor in spirit anymore. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Because the gospel, if the gospel disappeared today, would you be Okay. If the gospel ceased to exist today, would you be fine? Could you keep trucking along? No, you couldn't. And neither could I. We so desperately, desperately need the truth of Jesus and his work in our life today. And the gospel is just as relevant in my life today. And it's just as relevant in your life today as the day that you got saved. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Now notice what Jesus says next. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven right? Think about this. Poor, poverty, destitute. And what Jesus gives to them is the fullness of riches, kingdom of heaven. Secondly, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Can we just be honest? I I read that one. I'm not all that fired up about being someone who mourns. It's not exactly fun, right? That's not exactly something that I want to spend my time doing. What's he really talking about? Does Jesus want us to be a bunch of sad saps walking around all the time talking about how miserable everything is? Well, no, but let's understand what he's talking about here. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, it's to see the sadness of the day. It's to identify and recognize the sadness, the brokenness, the lostness of the day. Now, now, is it very hard for us to look at the world around us and not see the spiral downward that we are racing towards? It's pretty easy to identify. And what Jesus is saying is that we should be broken about that. That, that as we look out at people who are, who are living and dying and entering a Christless eternity, that we should be gripped by that. Yeah, it was a real bummer what happened last week over in the Middle East. Too bad. No, no you got to understand, man, people are rolling into eternity. It's fixed, never to be changed, apart from the Savior of the universe. Blessed are those who mourn, where our hearts should be gripped by all that is happening. Notice what Jesus says, for they shall be comforted they shall be comforted. Interesting, this word, the Greek word here is parakleo, which is the same root word that we get for the Holy Spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word literally means to call to a side. It's the idea of God himself calling us to his side and essentially saying, loved one, everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. Blessed are those who mourn, Notice this one, uh, verse 5, the third one we see. Uh, blessed are the meek. I don't know any guy that gets fired up about verse 5, just saying. Okay? Blessed are the meek. That kind of cuts against uh, the, the, the very nature of who we want to be and who we think God has called us to be and certainly who uh, the world tells us we're supposed to be. Some of your translations have humble or uh, gentle there. But I love the the definition of the Greek word here. Let me read this to you. Because I don't think we necessarily understand what meekness is in the biblical sense. Meekness toward God is that disposition of spirit in which we accept His dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. Let me read that to you again. Just consider your present circumstance, where you find yourself right now in your life. Meekness toward God is that disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good. For some of you, that's very easy. That's a very easy word to hear right now because honestly, life's really good. But for some of you, for some of you, that's a very hard word. That's a very difficult word to hear. That, that God, what God is doing with me is good, and I'm not going to dispute or resist against that. Well, let me go on, further explanation of the word. It says, in the Old Testament, the meek are those wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend them against injustice. Thus, meekness toward evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict, that he is using them to purify his elect, and that he will deliver his elect in his time. Gentleness or meekness is the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle or meek person is not occupied with self at all. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of the human will. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Loved ones, can can we just come to the place where we would simply choose to embrace whatever God gives us? God, I'm going to embrace whatever you choose to give me, whatever you have for me. I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to take that. I'm going to run with that. Blessed are the meek. For some of you, it's easy to hear that. Because life is good. You're financially secure. You're uh, in a great place relationally. You've um, had a lot of success. Others of you, that's a very difficult word. You have chronic pain or illness. You have great financial struggle. There's relational strife that doesn't ever seem like it's going to end. But see, humility or meekness isn't conditioned upon whether or not life is good. It's tied to whether or not I'm going to embrace what God has for me. And move forward in that. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? Inherent in meekness is that I surrender all. And what God turns around and does is he gives us everything. I find that fascinating. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You ever been really, really hungry? Right, like deliriously hungry? Okay, who's ever been there? Okay. Who, who's ever been, uh, maybe a little bit better in the Southwest, who's ever been really, really thirsty? Like parched, cotton mouth. Maybe some of you know, it's kind of warm in here right now, right? It's kind of warm. You know, truthfully, I'm kind of cottonmouth. mouth. I'm kind of thirsty. And what would be more refreshing than an ice-cold glass of water. Oh, well, look, I've got one. And look at this, man, just filled to the brim with ice. Doesn't that look good? Don't, don't y'all want some of that? And, you know, I'm pretty thirsty. Y'all, y'all pretty thirsty? Anyone? I haven't drank out of this. Anyone want a drink? I, I want a drink. Oh, man, that feels so good. Right? And you're sitting there going, I, I really want a drink. Bring that stupid cup over here hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And yet, how often we're not hungry for it, we're not thirsty for it, we're apathetic towards it. We don't crave it. We don't long for it. Eh, If it happens, that's great, but if not, no big deal. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm going to get one more because this is pretty good. All right. And then what he says next, for you will be satisfied. You'll be satisfied. See, when you haven't eaten all day, how do you approach the dinner table? I'm guessing you don't come at it like a sparrow, right? Pack, pack, pack. No, more like a wild animal, okay? Ravenous, wild animal. That's how we're to pursue righteousness. And in that, there's satisfaction. I found this so interesting. The word satisfied, it's the same words that are used when Jesus feeds both the 4,000 and the 5,000. And when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the people hadn't eaten all day. And, and, and it tells us in the feeding of the 4,000 that they had followed him the last three days. So there's quite possibly people that have eaten, haven't eaten in three days. And then Jesus starts multiplying all these loaves. Now, how many people want to bet that they were all socially polite and just kind of ripping off a little piece and nibble? And, uh, yeah. Anyone want to bet that was happening? Uh, no way. It's like, that's mine. And Wah, like cookie monster going on with thousands of people. And I'm guessing they didn't eat just a little bit okay, entering into a bread coma by the time they're done because they're satisfied, right? Their belly is full, like, ah. That's what it is to hunger and thirst for righteousness, where there's the fullness of satisfaction, the fullness of satisfaction. Now, let me just ask you this question. Just ask yourself, is that pursuit... Of what we see of the 4,000 and the 5,000, is that comparable to the hunger and the thirst that I have for righteousness? Or do I find myself satiated on so many other things of the world that, yeah, occasionally I get a little bit hungry, but I get get my righteousness snack, and then I'm good. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, Jesus moves from uh, engaging God and man to moving... Uh, to engaging between one another. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Sometimes it's really, really hard to be merciful to others. Right? Mer- mercy is to extend to someone what they do not deserve. It's a judge who pardons a guilty man. Kind of sounds like another example I'm aware of. That right? where God Himself Pardons you and I. He doesn't give us what we rightfully deserve. You and I are not condemned to an eternity apart from Jesus because there's mercy. There's mercy. Blessed are the merciful, right? Where there's a forgiveness of the guilty in my life. There's a compassion for those who are suffering. It's a heart and a mind that forgives, that gives second chances, that offers hope. Not, listen very carefully, not. A heart and a mind of judgment, of criticism, or some element of you owe me. There's nothing merciful in that. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Right? They're going to get the very same thing that they extend to those around them. The extension of mercy uh, brings right back to them mercy itself. Just think about yourself right now. How merciful are you uh, to those around uh, you? And maybe you uh, want to think through this question here. Would I be comfortable being judged by the standard of mercy that I extend to others? Would I be comfortable being judged by the standard of mercy that I extend to others? If not, probably time to start cranking up the mercy in your life and being reminded of the incredible mercy that God has extended to you and I. Blessed are the merciful. And this next one, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. You ever been around the guy or the gal where everything seems like some kind of angle? They're trying to get something. Everything feels like there's some, some conniving or um, a manipulation that's taking place. Even the good things feel like, man, you're just buttering me up because you're going to ask me for something. Okay, true confession. Has anyone been around someone like that? Right? Uh, how many people enjoy being around a person like that? Show of hands. All right. okay, no suckers in the room. All right, good to know. Right? no, no one enjoys being around a person like that. Right? The very opposite of the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Psalm 24 says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Tells us that he who has clean hands and a pure heart. What's being done in your life today, loved ones, that's being done absent of a pure heart? In what ways are you manipulating or conniving or scheming To get what you want. Blessed are the pure in heart. Notice what Jesus says Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. It's a pretty darn good reward, I might uh, point out. They're going to see God. In fact, I would suggest to you that the only way you're going to see God is if you have a pure heart. In fact, Hebrews 12 tells us to strive for peace, uh, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness or purity without which no one will see the Lord. Is your heart pure? Are your motives pure? Are your intentions pure? Blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. One who attempts to bring two parties who are at odds with each other, who are in conflict with one another, to a place of reconciliation or restoration. Can I I just tell you this? That's a really, really difficult thing to do. Steve Moore, you spend pretty much the entirety of your career doing this. Is your job easy? People can't see you, man. Talk. (laughs) (laughs) Been been a lot of angst, right? I'm I'm putting Steve on the spot. He didn't know I was going to do this. I wasn't even sure if I was going to do this, but uh, you you have a very difficult job. And yet, Steve, um, is anyone more blessed in their work than you? Except me. I'll I'll push back on that. I can't speak for anyone else. All right. Um, It's a hard job. It's a difficult job to be a peacemaker. It's hard to come to the table with, with two people that are odds with each other, have conflict with one another and, and bring them back to the place of reconciliation and yet Jesus tells us, blessed are those people. Now, let me, let me say this. I think there's, there's a, some confusion when it comes to peacemaking. Do not confuse peacemaking with avoiding conflict. Those are not the same thing. In fact, I don't think anything could be further from the truth. All right? Peacemaking is not avoiding conflict. In fact, I would tell you that conflict is not the opposite of peace. It simply represents the barrier between the two parties that keep them from peace. And a failure to engage that item, a failure to engage that issue, will always, always, always prevent us from having peace. Conflict has to be engaged if we're ever going to get to the place of peace. The road to peace runs right through conflict. All right, let's be clear on that. Blessed are the peacemakers. Notice what the reward is. For they shall be called sons of God sons of God why why are they going to be called sons of God because they're acting just like their dad they're doing the very thing that their dad did that he would bring peace now now how did Jesus bring peace did he avoid conflict did he shy away from it or did he handle it head on he handled it head on he went right to the cross dealt with the issue straight up blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God here's the final one verse 10 Blessed are those who are persecuted, you probably want to underline these next three words, for righteousness sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness, right? Persecute literally means to harass, to put to flight, to trouble, to drive away. It's any behavior that would cause me to be driven away from Jesus. But notice that it doesn't simply just say blessed are those who are persecuted. Why not? Well, because sometimes, right, let's just be honest here, sometimes you're persecuted because you're obnoxious or you act like a jerk. All right? That's sometimes why you're persecuted. And you can't pin that one on Jesus. If you treat people poorly and they return in kind, you get exactly what you deserve. In fact, I find it interesting that the only one that has any kind of commentary to it is this last one, right? Jesus goes on, and he kind of qualifies for us. Hey, here's what this looks like. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Now, these next few words are key. Falsely on my account. See, they're saying something that's not true about you, and they're doing that because of who I am and the place and position that I have in your life. Verse 12 cuts against all um, uh, wisdom from our society or culture, right? When things are bad, certainly we don't rejoice and be glad, but these are the very words of Jesus, so it's probably a pretty good idea uh, to adhere to this. Rejoice and be glad. Okay, why? Why am I going to rejoice and be glad when I'm taking a beating falsely? Well, here's why. For your reward is great in heaven, for sure, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness, Am I being persecuted because of Jesus' presence in my life? And, of course, the hope that God gives us when we find ourselves in that place is what He told us at the very outset were those uh, who were poor in spirit, that for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, that's what this is all about. Now, look at these eight items here for just a moment. I'll I'll be honest with you. Um, I might, I might... Of my own accord, choose two of them. The pure in heart thing, yeah, that's probably a good one. The peacemaker sounds good, but as we've already said, that's kind of a brutal job. Uh, not really all that excited about being poor in spirit. Uh, don't really get fired up about mourning. The hungry thing, I hate the hungry thing. I am pretty, uh, pretty much love being full, right? We go on and on. I wouldn't choose most of these. My sense is most of you wouldn't choose these either. Part of the reason is that we wouldn't choose them is because we're incapable of doing them apart from the Spirit. And see, that's just the very point. That a life of blessed glory is characterized by a life who lives in the power of the Spirit, accomplishing things that we can never do in and of ourselves. That's what it is to live a life of blessed glory. It's where the Spirit of God controls you and I, and we do things that have left to ourselves we could never, ever do. These eight items, please don't walk out of here trying harder. I'm going to be more pure and hard. I'm going to be more of a peacemaker. Walk out of here surrendering yourself to Jesus going, you know what? You know what, God? I can't do these unless you have full control of my life. And in that, and in that, there's immense blessing. Let's just close with this final item. Use this to just kind of wrap our time up here. Verses 13 through 16, we see a couple of examples of blessed glory. Examples of what blessed glory looks like, both for us and for others. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. All right, two examples. Two examples that Jesus gives us of, of what it looks like. This is how it plays out. This is what it looks like in your life and in my life and in the lives of those around us uh, when this begins to happen. Uh, you're the salt of the earth. The word "you" there is is plural. It's corporate. It's not just about me. It's not just my personal thing. Anyone ever put one grain of salt on your dinner? Right? Pour a few. No, 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 no. Just just one. Sprinkle that on. Oh, that's good, right? Any anyone ever done that? Right? You might go home and do that just so you can raise your hand next time and be a smart aleck, okay? But uh, right, no one does that. Right? There's there's a lot of salt that shows up in that. It's corporate. It's plural. And then he says, are, you are. See, the emphasis of are is on being, not on doing. And it moves me not to trying harder and doing, 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 but it moves me to the finished work of Jesus and resting in that. It's where my heart is transformed by what Christ has done and then the behavior follows. Salt of the earth. Okay, let's just talk about salt and light here real quick. Salt. <clears throat> Do you know that salt was a valuable commodity? In fact, so valuable that uh, commonly amongst the Greeks, it was called theon, which literally means divine. That's how highly they viewed it. Uh, the, Romans, the Romans held that only the sun itself was more valuable than salt. And salt was often used as a currency to pay Roman soldiers See, what Jesus is alluding to is, in terms of us being salt of the earth is that we're to be a valuable commodity to the world. That we should be influencing the world. That we should be distinct in the world. But we're not privileged or entitled to this. It's not something that the world owes us. Sometimes I fear that we think that the world owes us that. Hey, we're, we're believers. We're Christians. You owe it to us to have a voice. You owe it to us to be special. It's not entitled to us, but only when we live in accordance to what Jesus has laid out for us do we begin to become distinct and have uh, influence in the hearts and lives of those around us. Now I'll just tell you that one of the, bis- one of the biggest disconnects One of the biggest disconnects for non-believers today is the hypocrisy uh, that often shows up in um, both the words and the lives of professing believers. In one sense, in one sense, that will always be there because even the greatest believer is going to be a massive failure at rightly and accurately representing who Jesus is. But in another sense, in another sense, we've done far too much to push that along. And, and, and the, all these things that we say, but no discernible difference in who we are or how we live. We're no different. We're no different. We're not seen as a valuable commodity. We're not seen as massively important. We're just seen as annoying hypocrites. Because we're not any different. We don't look any different than anyone else. People, they've heard all the rhetoric. But far too often, they don't see anything that's distinct or different about us. We're to be the salt of the earth. To be the salt of the earth. And he says this, you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. The city on a hill cannot be hidden. You can't hide light. You can't hide it. it. It just breaks through the darkness. Right, does two things one it exposes what's bad and wrong right Ephesians 5 very clearly talks about how right walking in the light the, the exposing of what's wrong but then also it produces what's what's good it reveals to us what's good it's Psalm 119 your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path the distinctive life of a believer will shed light into the hearts and minds of others both in what is wrong and should be changed and what is right and good and should push us closer towards God. Both of these, they lead us to verse 16. I just wrote this down. Good works for God's glory. What's an example of blessed glory? Well, it's good works for God's glory, right, where we started. But but this idea that the Beatitudes, that being salt, being light should drive all of us to a place where God is glorified. Drive all of us to a place where much is made of Him and, and, and where there's blessing that comes in, in our lives and the lives around, of those around us, where there's influence in us being distinct and there's illumination because we begin to reveal to others all that God longs to do in the hearts and lives of a lost and broken and dying world who desperately need a Savior. Pray with me. Jesus, we pray. God, we pray that you uh, would help us to have a firm grasp on a longing for your glory, on a longing to see much made of you, on a longing to be honored in our lives. God, would we not try harder would we not do more but would we be consumed by you and in that God in that where that would begin to flood our hearts and minds that would begin to uh, take over all that we are and that our behavior would follow in these things Jesus we love you We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen.